You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. The Bible reading today comes from Galatians 2, 15, 21, and this passage can be found at page 973. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ and Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." You may be seated. Today, the missionary we pray for is Life Choice Pregnancy Center. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for a day that you made so we can come and worship you and learn from your word. Lord, we pray for Pastor Keith and the message today that we may have the ears to hear what what it is you have prepared for us today. Lord, we also pray for Life Choice Pregnancy Center, for overall protection and health for board members, staff, and volunteers. We pray for the medical mobile unit in in the communities as far as rebuilding process and spirit of unity in the communities is concerned. We pray for all training of volunteers to be successful and beneficial. And we also pray for a growth of supply of items to support the parents and children that they serve. And for all of these needs, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Happy... uh Winter day, I guess, right? No? Nobody's happy about it? Yesterday was hurricane day, and today is, although not really. I've, embra- I've come to embrace the wind of shine, kind of, like everybody else here. Just like, it's, it's inevitable. No use arguing against it. But um, there is a certain level of pride to be taken in that you know, I, I think somebody posted something on Facebook, you know, uh, and, and other places they give 80 mile an hour winds a name, but here in Wyoming it's just another Wednesday, so, or Saturday. All right, so we're in 
this sermon series uh, on, titled Here I Stand. It's on the five tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Do not let that scare you away. Uh, you, if, for all, those of you who have been you know, here or know me, my, my MO is we get into the text of Scripture and we preach from this book. But we also stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And so I thought leading up to October 31st, which is the anniversary of that day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints on the Wittenberg door, which launched the Protestant Reformation. We will explore those five tenets as, as the scriptures teach them, and that is that the, the first one is scripture alone. That was the first Sunday in this series, that the authority of the church is not the Pope. It is the scriptures, the Bible, the Bible alone. And the, the, the authority of God's word is the authority uh, over our lives as well. Not your pastor, not the elders, although God puts different people in places of leadership, but ultimately it is the, it is the word of God. That's why you know, we stand at the reading uh, of God's word to honor the reading of God's word. I've said this many, many times, so you're familiar with it, probably maybe even annoyed by me saying it again, is that I don't have, I feel like I don't have anything really good to offer outside of what is in the scriptures. So scripture alone. There are many uh, individuals who, you know, in the, in the 1300s, 1400s, and 1500s, when there was no Bible, in a language that people could read, believe that people needed to have the Bible in their own language that they could read in their own home. And so, so that's Scripture alone. And then, uh, and then the second tenet of the Protestant Reformation is grace alone. We looked at that last week, that salvation is by grace alone. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's no, there are no brownie points in heaven, you know, that if you go to church X amount of times, or if you memorize some verses, or if you're really nice to people, that God will take that into consideration, and then and if, he, if he feels like you've got enough you know, points, then you can get into heaven. There's none of that. So it's simply by grace alone that a person is saved. And then today we're going to look at faith alone, that the way you receive that grace is through faith alone, and next week will be in Christ alone. And so so I've been sharing some stories of different individuals who are heroes of my faith, uh, heroes of, of many people's faith. We you know, looked at Martin Luther. We, uh, we, we looked at uh, John Wycliffe. Last, um, last week we looked at William Tyndale. We looked at a few others as well. But I ended last week's message with just where I told you how William Tyndale was, was sentenced to death because of his role in translating the Bible from, from the original languages into English, then having it printed, mass-produced, and smuggled it like crack cocaine into Europe where it was sold in the black market. He was sentenced to death for that by, by Henry VIII and, and at that time the Roman Catholic Church. He, because at that time the church, which was really not the church, it was just they, they really were threatened by the Bible. And so William Tyndale was sentenced to death by the stake where he was tied to the stake. He was choked to the point of being at least unconscious. Also, there was gunpowder wrapped around either his body or, or, or at the base of the, of the flames where his body was blown up. And uh, that's how he died. 
Shortly after that, Henry VIII, uh, well, William Tyndale, I shared this with you, William Tyndale prayed as he was dying, Lord, open the king's eyes. And so Henry VIII, shortly after that, uh, legalized the printing, of the translation of the Bible into English. Uh, I'm not sure he knew that 70%, at least 70% of that version of the Bible was actually Tyndale's work. And it was translated, and, and it, was, it was published in the sense that it was, it was put in, I believe, uh, many of the churches where people could read the Bible in their own language. Henry VIII had several, he had, he had a bunch of wives, he had several children. Um, two of the children uh, that I want to just share with you, one of them was Edward, Edward VI, and then there was Mary. So, so Edward, so Henry VIII, under his reign, really opened up the doors for, for some of those who protested against the Catholic Church to, to be able to continue teaching the Bible, preaching. Denominations start the Lutheran denomination, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, we get the Lutheran denomination from Martin Luther. Uh, the the English Church was the recognized state church uh, under Henry VIII's reign, um, and then on and on it goes. But guys like uh, Hugh Latimer, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, Hugh Latimer, uh, Nicholas Ridley, John Knox, and some others. Uh, were at that time on the scene. These were some of the guys that studied at the White Horse Inn that William Tyndale was a part of. They were reading books written by Martin Luther. They were reading the Bible. They were doing so uh, illegally and, and, and growing in their faith. Then Henry VIII you know, came on the scene, and they didn't really have to do that in, in, in private anymore. Henry VIII's son, Edward VI, grew up under the preaching and teaching of Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and John Knox. And he, he became, I believe, uh, Edward was a believer. Like, he wound up placing his faith and trust in Christ at some point. Uh, I'm not sure Henry VIII was a believer. I think his motive was more political. But, but Henry VIII died, and Edward became the next king at the age of 10. He was 10 years old when he became king. And under his short reign as king, he really worked to have the Bible mass-produced and distributed in every church in England uh, and, and tried to make it as readily available as, as possible. There were, I think, uh, I, I, I wrote it down somewhere, there were like over 30, I believe, over 30 editions of the English Bible that were uh, printed and distributed all throughout Europe under Edward VI. When Edward VI was 16 years old, he died. He got sick. He died. And his sister, who did not share his passion for the Reformation, became the, the queen. And so, so Mary really believed that, uh, that her role was to deliver England back to Rome, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And the way that she was going to purge all the, 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 the heresy of, of Europe was by burning. 
And under her rule and her reign, over, uh, or at least 300 people were burned at the stake, and she received the name, the nickname. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Bloody Mary. Exactly. And so it was a result of her that, that uh, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Kramer uh, were sentenced to death. Uh, Latimer and Ridley were bishops in the Protestant church. Uh, Thomas Kramer became the archbishop, and, and then they, you know, their titles were obviously stripped from them, and they were sentenced to death under Queen Mary. Thomas Kramer uh, actually wrote and printed the Book of Common Prayer. You ever hear of the Book of Common Prayer? I'm going to talk about that a little next week. But, um, but, but it's just basically an order of, well, I'll, I'll talk about it next week. But anyway, it, it's an important book. And so, so these were these people that God used. And, and the Protestant Reformation was spreading like wildfire all, all throughout Germany and, and Europe. It, it, went, it found its way through Switzerland. And you had a queen in Switzerland who, who uh, also became a follower of Jesus and did everything she could to, to protect those who were protesting against the church um, and, and others. A guy by the name of John Calvin that God raised up and used. He's another reformer who we'll talk about in two weeks. Uh, just some amazing things were happening in the world, I believe, uh, as a result of the Spirit of God moving through these individuals. And then Queen Mary came on the scene, and she had, had uh, Latimer, Ridley, and, and Kramer uh, sentenced to death. And here's, so I was just thinking about the reason for that, because here, here's why people like Mary was threatened by people like Latimer and Ridley and Kramer and, and Tyndale and Luther because the idea that there is nothing that I can bring to the throne of God for my salvation is an insult to the human pride. That's why I think these people were so offended by the idea that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. And that the authority over the church was not popes or councils, but the scriptures, period, alone. It's, a, it's an assault on the human pride. It's, it's you know, it, which something is kind of ingrained in us, this idea that, that I can bring something to God that will require him to look upon me with favor if I do enough stuff that he likes. Like somehow I can get God to be in my debt. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that today. They've changed some things, but they still, it's still part of their, their dogma, part of their teaching. You probably are familiar with William Ernest Henley's uh, poem, Invictus, right? It's kind of like the anthem of the, of the American way, right? Uh, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstances, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but I'm bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms with the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. 
It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the what? The captain of my soul. Right? We, we, we kind of, in, in the West, we, we, we feel that. We feel like I'm, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Nobody's going to tell me what I can or can't do. I'm going to do it. And, uh, and the scriptures tell us, no, 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 um, you are not the master of your fate. You're not the captain of your soul. There is one whose image we bear, who is the master of our fate, and who is the captain of our soul, regardless of what you think or what I think. And, and, and I, you know, what we learn throughout history is this. Listen, anything that is contrary to what the Bible teaches, like so in, that, in Latimer's day, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was taught that the Pope was the authority over the church and that what he said actually had more authority or bore more authority than the scriptures actually said. Like, anything like that is nothing new. Any, any heresy, like real heresy, any teaching that is, runs against the grain of the Bible is never new, it's just different dress. So, so what was happening in, in William Tyndale's day and what you know, resulted in the launch of the Protestant Reformation because of what the Roman, church, Roman Catholic Church was teaching, that was not new. And when you read Galatians, Paul actually is addressing the same stuff. There were people known as Judaizers who were teaching Christians that they could, you know, that Jesus was, was fine and it was good and, and you needed Jesus, but it was, Jesus wasn't enough. You needed Jesus plus something else. And so really, the, I'm gonna, the two points that, that Paul addresses here is one, by faith I am made righteous through Jesus, period. That there's nothing that I can bring to, to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Nothing I can contribute. And these Judaizers were saying, no, oh yeah, you can contribute. Look, look if, if you Gentiles who, you know, you didn't grow up hearing about Adam and Eve and you didn't grow up hearing about Moses and you're not familiar with the Psalms or the prophets, but, but, but as a result of becoming a Christian, what will seal the deal for your salvation is if you get circumcised males, like the men, if you're, if you're physically circumcised and then you start observing the different... Uh, requirements of the law. And so Paul, you know, basically addresses that, and he says, no, that's not how you're saved. And so there are three things that I just want to point out in, in verses 15 through 18 that Paul addresses here. First, he, say, he makes a statement that can be a little confusing. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that, well, because we're not Gentiles, we're not sinners? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, we grew up with the Mosaic Law, and one thing is for sure, we fell short every time we tried to keep the law. In fact, what the law, and I'll say this later in Galatians, what the Old Testament law does do for us is it tells us that, that we are jacked up sinners who are helpless and we are in severe need of somebody to step in our place and fix our situation, our sin problem. And, and the reality is, is that with Gentiles who didn't grow up hearing about the Old Testament, well, the law of God is written on their hearts too. And every human being who is honest with themselves realizes that there's something wrong with the world that we live in. Like Aerosmith 
in their song, they were theologically right. There's something wrong with the world today, <laughs> right? And, and, and it's true. Just turn on the TV right now and you will discover just how jacked up uh, we are as a species. The second thing is that, I, uh, that Paul mentions here is he uses a word, and that word is justified. Well, what does he mean by justified? What he means is that to be justified is to be legally declared righteous even though you're guilty of sinning. So what Paul says in this passage is this. Is that you're not justified before a holy God, made right before a holy God by anything that you do. It's by what you receive. Receiving the perfect work that Jesus lived out in your place and accomplished on the cross, receiving that by faith as that being enough to be your righteousness. And when, and when you believe that by faith, when you receive that by faith, what happens is you are, we use the word saved, we use the, word, we use the phrase born again, you are made right before a holy God, you are justified before a holy God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. The third thing that he mentions here is the word faith. And, and so biblical faith is not just something that happens in your brain. In fact, in James, in the Bible, in, in the epistle to, uh, written by James, he makes the statement that uh, even the demons believe that there's a God, and they shake, Right? Now, the type of faith Paul is talking about here is, is the kind of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read this together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right, how many of you were there when Jesus was born? Were, were you with the shepherds, anybody? No, because if anybody raised their hands, I mean, everybody else would be concerned for you, right? <laughs> Nobody was here... Nobody was there when Jesus died on the cross, right? And nobody witnessed his physical resurrection on the third day after his death. But how many of you believe that it happened, right? You believe that it happened not, not because you were there and you witnessed it, but because you have some pretty good reason to believe that it happened. Like there is more documentation of the existence and life of Jesus historical documentation than there is of Julius Caesar and other people that are in history in the Bible and outside the Bible like Jesus physically was born he physically lived life he died on a Roman cross and the tomb that he was buried in was empty three days later and we believe that by faith that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and on the third day he rose from the grave. And, and the faith that the Bible's talking about is not, it's not the kind of faith where you have all the answers, you know, all, of, all, uh, all the, you know, the, the um, uh, scientific confirmation for why you believe what you believe. It's believing it. Just like when you walked in this chair, how many of you were there when these chairs were fabricated and built? Anybody witness these chairs? being built, the ones that you're sitting in? Uh, probably not. How many of you, when you came into this room, made sure that that chair is going to hold you up before you sat in it? Did anybody examine it thoroughly? Make sure the bolts and screws were in place? No. 
You, by faith, believed that that chair was going to hold you up, and guess what happened? You sat your butt down in it, and none of you have fallen, right? Well, it's the, the biblical faith is, is not just believing in your mind. It's, it's trusting that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. That, that what he did on the cross for my sins in my place was enough. And as a result, I stand before a holy God, justified and made righteous before him. Now, my actions don't always prove that I'm, justif- you know, that I'm, that I'm righteous, but, but positionally, I, I am righteous before him. It is the unflinching dependence that Jesus lived the life that you could never live, died the death that you deserved, and rose again on the third day. And, uh, and we believe it. How many of you were there when earth was formed? Anybody? Uh, whether you believe Big Bang Theory or not. Anybody, anybody there? No, because if you raised your hand, you, you know what would happen. You might be committed. Um, or you need counseling. We weren't there. And if, if you, you, those who... So there are two theories of how the earth began. There is intelligent design, and that is somebody who is responsible for the creation of everything that we see, like when you go to an art gallery, no picture, no painting, appear, it just happened randomly. Some of it appears that way, but, but, it, but that's not the truth. Like somebody was designed that painting or that sculpture. And then you have those who believe that it's all by chance. But here's the reality. Neither person was there to witness the happening of all that came into existence. You know what that's called? It's called uh, uh, a presupposition. You, you, you arrive with, a certain, with certain baggage to your theory of why we're here. Either it happened because somebody designed it, or it happened because it just was random and chance. And we believe that the earth was created and everything was created because there is an, an intelligent being behind it. Just like... In most cases, in an art gallery, there's an intelligent being behind what you see in an art gallery. So by faith, I am made righteous through Jesus. And that's what biblical faith is. And Paul's saying, you can't do enough good things. Like there's, there's, You can't. And what you need is you need another person's righteousness a perfect person, person, that person is Jesus, who's God who took on flesh. And for some people, that sounds absolutely insane. And for other people, like that makes the most sense in light of our world's craziness. The second point is this, is that by faith I am reconciled to God. That uh, my greatest need and your greatest need and the greatest need of every human being that lives on planet Earth is a need to be reconciled to God. Every single one of us was born spiritually dead, broken, born sinners. And, and our greatest need is to be reconciled to a God whose image we bear. That's what the testimony of Scripture and, uh, and the reason why the world the way is the way that it is is because of what our greatest need is. We are fallen human beings. And, um, and when Jesus died and rose again, he, he did that to, make, to, to liberate sinners like you and to liberate sinners like me, but not just to stop there. He did so to change us. 
I, this is a phrase that irks me more and more uh, the older I get, and, that is, and it's this phrase. When somebody does something that is, uh, you know, um, bad, we'll just say bad, <laughs> makes a poor decision, a lot of that's happening in politics today, right? Uh, uh, and they just do something really stupid. Our response to defend that person is to say what? He or she is only human. And that is the furthest thing from Scripture. To be human is not to, inherent in, in being a human being is not our sinfulness. We are cursed and we are sinful people because of, because of the fall, but to experience humanity at its fullest is not to experience it as sinners, but to experience it as those who have been redeemed, who have been reconciled to God, who have been forgiven of our sins. And one day, by faith, we believe this, that Jesus is not only, uh, not only did he die on the cross and rise on the third day, but he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the Bible tells us that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that he will make all things new and that there, there won't be the issue of sin. And when that day comes, do you know what will our experience will be? Humanity at its fullest. To be human is not to be flawed and sinful. That's the result of our, of our fallenness. But that's not the definition of humanness, of what it means to be a human being. And so Jesus came to liberate sinners like you and me. He came to, to, to reorient our, our, our who we are, and to, and, and to reconcile us to a God whose image we bear. And, and by doing that, we can experience the joy that we were meant to enjoy. Not the smiles, you know, every day kind of joy, but the contentment to really know your purpose. And, to only know, and the only way you can know your purpose is to, is to, be rec- is to first be reconciled to God. Um, so there's a passage in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says this. Let's read this together. It says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I bet you if I surveyed any person in here who's a Christian and asked you, has there been a change in your life since you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Has there been a change in your life as a result? Have you experienced change? And I think most of you, if not all of you, will be able to say yes. Well, why? Because once you become a Christian or a follower of Jesus, something supernatural happens in you. You know, Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes of the faith, uh, says that the, the affections of your heart begin to change. Like as a result of becoming a Christian, you begin to, your love for God begins to grow. How you view the world around you begins to change. How you treat your neighbor begins to change. Why? Because you, are, you have been made a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. They're one of my favorite stories that reminds me of the grace that I received through Jesus by faith is the story of this, this, this mom whose wayward daughter left the house and, and uh, for all she knew, her daughter was going to uh, enter into a, a life of drugs and prostitution. I mean, she heard some stuff and and, and it, she knew it was going to be bad. And so she had pictures printed of her daughter, and on every picture she wrote this phrase, it doesn't matter what you have become, it doesn't matter what you've done, I still love you, come home. It doesn't matter 
what you have become. It doesn't matter what you have done. I still love you. Come home. When Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and, and, uh, and others like them, Hugh Latimer, Latimer and, and, and Ridley and Thomas Cranmer, when, when they read the Scriptures for the first time, and they read passages like Galatians chapter 2, what they heard was the voice of God say, it doesn't matter what you've become. It doesn't matter what you've done. I love you. Come home. And that's, that's the, the, the plea of all of Scripture. Like, like everything about us should result in God being repulsed by us, but instead he has, he's loved us. I mean, John 3.16, a passage that most of you are familiar with, that God so loved the world that he what? He... He gave his only son. It doesn't say God so loved the world, like God so loved the world, then he saw how jacked up we were and he just vomited. Like it, it doesn't say, right? He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what believes in him will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. That's the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus pleads with us in Matthew chapter 11. He pleads with us, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Rest for what? Rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Like Jesus, I say it all the time, live this perfect life. Think about that for a moment. Live the perfect life that you could never live, that I could never live, Live that life, and you would think that as one who is perfect and who's sinless would be repulsed by some of the stuff that you did in your past or are doing or will do or some of the stuff that I've done, am doing, or will do. Like you think that he'd be repulsed by that, but instead he pleads with us, come to me and I will give you rest. I will not be disgusted by you. And you want, to see, you want to see the proof of that? Just see how stretched out my arms are on the cross for you, for your sins. And when he said this, when he made this statement about taking on his yoke, he was speaking to the religious legalism of his day. There were Pharisees, these religious teachers who, who basically uh, would, would tell the people around them, you need to do A, B, and C for God to love you. And Jesus, was, was, if he was repulsed by anybody, he was repulsed by those guys. He said a couple of things that were not so nice about them. He said, you are, you are, dead, you're, you are white sepulchers, uh, white tombs, whitewashed on the outside. It looks really beautiful on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. And, um, and he said, you know, he said, you... you, you the stuff that you're teaching, the burden that you're placing upon people and telling them and convincing them that if they just do enough stuff that they can somehow put God in their debt, what you're doing is you're making that person twice a son or daughter of hell than you are. Because there's nothing you can do. The only requirement that God requires of sinners is that they come with empty hands, believing that Jesus, his son, was enough for the forgiveness of their sins.
To take on Jesus' yoke is to identify with him, to trust him, and to follow him, not as the co-pilot of your soul, but the captain of your soul and the master of your life. Does that make sense? Like, Jesus is not your co-pilot. Like the bumper sticker used to say, I haven't seen that one in a while. It's probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> cheesy Christian bumper stickers. <laughs> not a fan. Uh, there's this lady by the name of Dorothy Day who was enamored by uh, William Henley's humanism or humanistic worldview, uh, admired his poem Invictus. She wound up becoming a Christian, and she wrote a poem in response to Henley's, and the words will be on the screen. She wrote this. She said, Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be, for Christ is the conqueror of my soul. Since his the way of circumstance, I would not wince or cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond the place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keep and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared my punishment from the scroll. Christ is the master of my life, or Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the master of my soul. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what it results in. To come to Christ means to surrender whatever illusion you have or you may have about your ability to remedy your own sin problem on your own. And to say, I can't. I need you, Jesus. And the only way to come to him is through faith alone, that Jesus is everything and all that you need. This is, why the, this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he closes, or, or wrote verse 20 here in Galatians chapter 2. Let's read this together. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a word that we use, and you heard me use it every once in a while. It's amen. You know what that means? It means so be it. It's an agreement. And when you read something like this, I just want to say amen. Amen. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Kramer all were part of that white horse in Bible study. They also became known as the Oxford Martyrs. Latimer and Ridley were sentenced to death immediately by stake where they were to be burned. And on October 16, 1555, which we just passed that anniversary this week, Kramer watched his two friends as they were led to the stake to die. Latimer wore a plain garment, simple gown. Ridley dressed in a black gown trimmed with fur and velvet, not because he was proud or arrogant, but because he belonged to an ancient house of knights, and he dressed that way. He dressed that way for what he considered to be his final victory. He would die in the name of Jesus. When questioned if either man would recant, Ridley answered this. He said, So long as breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ and his known truth. He took off his nice garments and he gave them away to be given to whoever. 
He had a simple garment underneath. A blacksmith chained the men to the stake. Again, Ridley said, good fellow, knock it hard, for the flesh will have its way, meaning make it tight, because I know that when the flames, when the fires are lit, the pain is going to be unbearable, and my, my flesh, everything in me is going to want to run from the flame, so make it as tight as possible. And when the executioners lit the fire that, became, that began by the feet of Ridley, Latimer, who was older than Ridley, said this. He, said, he turned to his friend and he said, Be of good comfort, Dr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. John Fox, who's a friend of these men, who also wrote Fox's book of martyrs, said this of his friends in his book. Latimer died quickly, but Ridley's fire waned. His lower parts burned through, but the flames barely hurt his upper body. In agony, he moaned, I cannot burn, Lord. Have mercy on me. At last, flames ignited the gunpowder sack that hung around his neck, and his life passed from earth to heaven. Thomas Kramer, the opposed archbishop, his own heart and mind wavering, his every sinew fearing the fire, watched his friends die from his cell in London Tower. Now, there's a picture I have on the screen. This is in England, and this is the place where Latimer and Ridley were, and eventually Cranmer were burned at the stake. It's the original cobblestone. As a reminder that I think pretty much all of Europe has forgotten <laughs> that the Protestant Reformation swept through that area in a pretty powerful way. God may, not call, God may not call you. Most, my guess is most likely will not call you to be a martyr, to die for your faith. But you know what he has called you to? He's called you to be a light in your community, a light in the midst of your family, the place where you work. God is in the business of saving sinful, jacked-up human beings. And the principal means by which he will use to, to, to uh, get the gospel heard by other people, to, to get the gospel to other people, is through people like you and people like me. Your most important mission, listen, Meadowbrook, and watching on the live stream, your most important mission in life is not to warm a chair on Sunday morning. That's not why you exist. It's important. We need each other. We need to encourage each other. I believe that the preaching of God's word, there's a supernatural means that God uses there to, to, to uh, strengthen his people. I, 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 we sing songs on Sunday to celebrate the gospel. All that is really important, but that's not why you exist. You exist for mission. And that mission is, is to bring the gospel, to be the light of the gospel in your world, in your family, the place where you work, your, your neighborhood, that the principal means by which God will communicate the greatest news in the universe is through you. I, I commented on, talked a little bit about uh, Ephesians chapter 2 last week. I just want to close with these words. In verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, of Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. But then it continues in verse 10. This is why Jesus died on the cross for your sins. This is why he rose from the grave. This is why you're here. For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The evidence that your faith is rooted in Jesus and in him alone, as the evidence of your salvation is, is what your life looks like now. Good works, a changing heart, the affections, uh, your affections, your, 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 the way you love God and the way you love your neighbor is changing. They, those are evidences that, that something supernatural has happened in you called the new birth as a result of the grace of God through faith in Jesus, period. The greatest need of our city is to hear and to know the forgiveness of our sins is only by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not through politicians or legislation or the next president. Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says that if that, if, if, if you have not been reconciled to him, if you're, if you're not a Christian, that the way to be a Christian, to become a Christian, is to believe. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Uh, we have nine people being baptized uh, next Sunday, right? I mentioned that. Nine, nine people. And uh, one of the young, young men, 11-year-old boy, came in the office thinking, you know, by being baptized, this will make sure that I, I get to heaven. And so I gave me an opportunity with his mom and dad with him to share the gospel with him. And bef before the end of the, our time together, he wound up praying to receive Jesus as his Savior. Like, that was the greatest, the, the, the most important thing he needed to hear was the gospel. And it was awesome. That's why we exist here in Cheyenne. Because people, people need to hear the gospel. They need Jesus. They need to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that salvation is not something we need to work for. It's not something we can earn. It is by your grace, through faith, our faith in Jesus alone, period, that he is enough, that he is enough, and I really can't bring anything to the table of your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.